Hello everybody, this is Grégoire Pierre. I will be your only host today as Edgar Francisco Danielson is currently working on finalizing his final case for NPAP to become a member of the association. Today we will listen to the second part of the interview I conducted with Lee Jenkins on race and racism from a psychoanalytic perspective. But I don't feel like I can introduce this podcast without going back to the recent event where a mob of right-wing activists stormed into the capital of the United States of America and how the police there let them do it, for the most part at least. I find it fascinating to see how people who are protesting for fascist authoritarian ideologies are not armed by the police. But when people are fighting for peace, for equality, for Medicare for all, for Black Lives Matters, they get shot and killed. I also want to point out how racism is fed by the way officials are not willing to condemn and to act on their condemnations of racist and intolerable attacks like we saw recently and just not recently all the time in america when you just knee dressed in black dressed in white whatever to protest without changing policies without putting people in prison without fining them then you send the message that it's okay and this is exactly what republicans and neo-Nazi and uh, right-wing supporters are now hearing. It's okay to be racist. You are not going to suffer any consequences. You can be racist and fascist to the point of storming into the capital of the United States of America and live without any consequences. And this goes for most of the Democrats and apparently all of the Republicans. I want to thank the squad and I want to thank Bernie Sanders and people around him for standing up and actually trying to institutionally sanction those acts because when we try to help people who are victim of racism or when we work with people who are actually racist we can help them understand how degrading intolerable dehumanizing those beliefs are But if we don't have an institutional support, this is not going to be enough. In any case, now I want to wish you a happy new year and hope you will be vaccinated. I know that outpatient clinicians are allowed to be in New York. I'm betting it's going to be the case in other states too. I'm going to be vaccinated very soon. And uh, let's hope to, that we can put this pandemic behind us and that we can use the fact that uh, that we have the parliament and the White House with the Democrats to really enact bold policies, even if, um, let's hope they do it. And until then, my name is Grégoire Pierre, and you are listening to Discussions on Psychoanalysis.
Now, Lee, let's talk about what I would consider to be quite a sensitive subject, especially in the US and also very much so in my experience of the psychoanalytic field. Let's talk about psychoanalysis and racism. My first question would be, how do you think psychoanalysis can be useful to understand racism in the US? <laughs> If it is. I think that it is probably better than any other discipline, or something that can be used for this purpose, to, to understand the unconscious processes involved in why we have to find differences among ourselves, how we have to maybe uh, engage in a process of elevating ourselves over against somebody else. What ways have we been undermined and wounded so we have to have somebody look down on us less than ourselves? I think that's all an unconscious process. People aren't aware they're doing that so much. And even when they are aware of it, they can't understand why they're doing it. They can offer some rationalizations for it, but they don't understand basically why I need to what to denigrate you in order for me to feel good. And I think that's the meat and potatoes of what psychoanalysis is about, is understanding those, why it is we can engage in those processes to, what, make ourselves feel better, to deal with our insecurities and failings. Do you feel like racism in the U.S. impacted the way psychoanalysis developed in the U.S., theoretically and maybe also in a clinical way? Well, I guess you could say something about ways that we as psychoanalysts see ourselves in a specialized way. What do we do? I think we are seeing ourselves as a special, humane, accomplished group of people. We think that often we have a specialized understanding of how people behave that elevates us above others. And I think we have to recognize that, you know, in our analysis, that we are no different from other people, that we can all be wounded, we can all be hurt, and that the ways in which uh, people can be hurt are universal that we all share these things, that this is what binds us together. What we really need is a way to deal with how to come to grips with the pain of rejection and hurt um, as a natural process without defending against it by making ourselves feel better at somebody else's expense. This is what psychoanalysis examines. We mentioned that a little bit in your training, but did you experience that at some point psychoanalysis was used as a defense against working to deconstruct racism? That it should be sometimes looked upon as value neutral, something like that. Mm -hmm. And that all the kinds of uh, secondary experiences we have in terms of our social conditioning and so forth are less important than the internalized developmental concerns we've got growing up and going through the developmental phases. Like people who were experiencing racism maybe at some point in the history of psychoanalysis in the U.S. perceived as maybe paranoid while actually they were really experiencing something in the society that psychoanalysis did not want to hear because psychoanalysis was only interested in internal conflicts at the time. Yeah, if you put it that way, that would mean that we'd have to address social concerns, social inequities, and see how developmentally, in terms of what you've been exposed to, hurt, pain, and anguish, are reflected or reinforced all over again in uh, attitudes out in society that make internally what you experience even worse. And we have to take into account what somebody says when he says, no, it's the, the racist attitudes I'm dealing with. Not the fact that my mother didn't love me or something like that. 
maybe you will be especially more sensitive to one after experiencing the other. One does not have to exclude the other. Yeah, I think it's the case primarily. It's what happened to you developmentally growing up. That's uh, the what the basis for how you experience whatever else is going on that's happening to you. But our emphasis is upon developmentally what happened first. And we kind of ignore how it is that attitudes that have been formed in us as a result of that upbringing come into contact with things that reinforce them, intensify them, and that maybe play a stronger part in our sense of ourselves is developmentally what we've gone through. And the psychoanalysis doesn't always give the kind of consideration to these secondary things. How do you approach racism in your practice? I think you already gave us some clues about it, but could you expand? What strikes me all the time is trying not to be defensive because you don't know exactly why people are coming with offensive things they're saying. They might not even realize they're being offensive. They might feel this is the only time they have the freedom to say all kinds of things that they can't say anywhere else. So they're caught up in the need to be truthful at last. And that may be reflected in what goes on when they sit in my office and say insulting things. Naturally, you got to make them aware of the degree to which they are insulting. I mean, what purpose is being served by being so? A lot of things may be going on there. They may be frightened of me. They may even feel in my presence diminished as a result of being there with me. They may be trying to test me to see whether I'm somebody they could respect who has enough courage to say, you know, you shouldn't be thinking and doing those things and uh, they need to be told. And then you have to try to disarm the tension. One example I can cite is the guy who was telling me how he's cut off by the black guy in his car. And uh, naturally, he thinks about the uh, social class difference between the two of them. Well, he's driving a cheap Ford. And I say, yeah, and you got a BMW. Yeah, I do. But he knows that having the BMW and everything else that represents hasn't made him like him, uh, love himself anymore. And why that might be, he's socially accomplished everything he's supposed to and is still unhappy and he still has to fault somebody is interesting even to him. So we begin to get into that. So always looking at what the wound is, you know, what the sense of failing is, I think is the most important thing. And you try to do it with some humor. It's the humor that diffuses the tension. And it rings about a recognition, and then he might even start crying. So then we get into what's really hurting him and how all the things that society says he should have to make up for it haven't succeeded. To me, that's where you can do some real therapeutic work with somebody like that. What about for people who are the object of this racism? How do you approach that? We sit and recognize that I, too, am an object of it. I don't have to say, yeah, well, you know, last week so-and-so happened to me. But in a way that he can be persuaded that he knows that I'm not exempt from the experiences he has had makes it possible for him to accept. Well, I've been exposed to it. I haven't been filled with the kind of rage he might. I'm not self-destructive as a result. How have you done that? Well, I don't know. Well, let's talk about it. Maybe some part of me has also been the beneficiary of somebody who loved me enough that I could be able to tolerate it. You have people in your life you feel hadn't loved you in the way you needed to be loved, and so you had any uh, armory left to uh, support yourself against all kinds of other insults and assaults coming at you. Maybe we can fortify those things now. Maybe you can recognize how you've been successful in ways you hadn't appreciated. 
maybe just sharing the experience with me makes it possible to see it as possible not to all the time be undone by somebody who wants to demean you. So you bring it up or you wait for your patients? I may do both, depending on how urgent or desperate the situation is. Uh, and of course, how to what degree the patient can hear it. Mm-hmm. You might have to wait a long time because mm-hmm. he may be so defensive about it that he, I don't want to talk about that with you or anybody. Or he may be ready. I don't know. What does one's own intuitive response to the person tell you to do is what I rely on. There's a big component of projection in racism, whether you are being racialized or racializing others. This leads to difficult situations to entangle. How do you approach that in your practice? Well, it's hard to say. I think we should say something about what projection is. It certainly is something unconscious. I mean, we think about projecting into somebody, but nobody is aware of, of doing this. It happens unconsciously, automatically, when we are faced with conflicts. And it means what? Attributing to other people, cast off parts of yourself, notions of your own sense of inadequacy. Mm-hmm. You're not having measured up, seeing yourself as a failure or desires or wishes that you have that are unacceptable. So I see this as people feeling that they are not their idealized self, the self they want to be. And they see black people as a natural bearer of pain and disappointment and failure. So it's easy to find objects like a black person into whom one could project disappointments in oneself. Let me give you a real weird example. Mm-hmm. When I was a teacher once, I had a colleague show me the soiled cuff of his shirt. That's when we were in the bathroom together, where he had wiped some feces on it when he was wiping himself. And now this was complete unconscious acting out, and he showed it to me. And I said, looks like you got some shit on you. Why are you showing it to me? He heard me, and he sheepishly grinned. In this way, I usually try to locate the ways in which the patient is feeling wounded and why and investigate the means he might resort to alleviate his distress. And I always try to keep humor in the room. And I have to watch my projecting into him mm-hmm. notions of his insensitivity and his lacking the inner strength to take the licks and the beating that life deals out to him rather than finding somebody else that he can blame or somebody else he can look down on. What you're bringing here is the fact that it's important for us to keep in mind that there are projections on both sides. Yes. When you are being racialized, it becomes difficult to get a sense of the other, what you will eventually um, project on anybody who might resemble a potential racist, mm-hmm. what you experienced before, something like that. Yeah. Do you bring that up in therapy? How do you get to working with both recognizing the experience that has been and maybe how it influences um, connection with people they have around in the present that might not be the one they met in the past and, and might be also? You're talking to each other about things that hurt and that wound. Say the racist is talking about how he can't understand how people can depart from reasonable, acceptable ways of behaving. And they have uh, attitudes toward him that uh, make him uh, dislike them. I can let him understand. I understand how you feel. I can feel the same way. That we can share a point of view about people we don't like because they disappoint us and they misbehave. But I understand something about why you feel like that. I could say even something about how I'm in a position similar to his Mm -hmm. so that we can begin to share ways in which we often have been mistreated and looked down on ourselves. 
And I, I'm just saying that's a basis for a mutual recognition of something. Even though the uh, points of departure are different, that the feelings are the same. And I think it's always crucial to get into a way of sharing things, even when they may be offensive things that you don't like, that you let it be understood, that you, you understand why somebody is feeling like that. And then you can get into what in his upbringing, his background, makes him uh, hate others with a kind of a familial, uh, cultural, uh, ethnic legacy that people he knows think this way. Therefore, it's proper for him to think that way, that he feels threatened in his life in some kind of way. These people are responsible for it. I mean, it's uh, let him see, yeah, I understand that. I could cite examples in my own life of something similar. Just getting into an understanding of why it is that one feels one has a basis to hate somebody on the basis of some difference they have from you or the way they depart from some way of behaving that you approve of and think it's a reasonable way to be. And the ones you dislike, threatening, because they insist on living and presenting themselves in a way that departs from what you approve of. So why is that threatening to you personally? Because it usually says something about how their presence undermines and detracts from some idealized notion you've got of yourself. You have to think about how can they be this way and have the same right to exist. To get into an understanding of why you hate others different from yourself is, is what I'm trying to get into. Mm-hmm. It's hard to do this, but once you get you know, an alliance going that you can begin to share feelings, people will come up with all kinds of things they'd never reveal. And that's the basis of promoting a way of a mutual acceptance, deconstruct what's so threatening about them. Let's put it differently. I feel like when someone is racialized, but um, I guess we can see that when someone is caricaturized, because we can see that with also uh, gender and uh, maybe uh, in some ways religion, in some ways uh, countries, uh, nationalities. People tend to be represented in a specific way. Let's say, for instance, as a French person, a question comes up. Uh, I'm going to say something very benign. You're French, so you must like wine. Mm-hmm. Again, still very benign. The question for me is, do I play with this kind of stereotype or do I try to go against it? And from my experience and with this very, again, benign example, it is much easier to go with the flow. Yeah. I'm French. I like wine, of course. So I'm assuming then when the prejudices are much stronger and much deeply rooted into actually the assumption of uh, personality traits, how do you work with that? And for instance, what struck me being in the U.S. is how there's this question of the U.S. is very organized around community. But for instance, the black culture. Yeah. If you are uh, recognized as black, there are certain things you're supposed to like, you're supposed to do, not do. And it's the same with kind of uh, any boxes that you will find. If you're white, there are things you're supposed to do, not do, etc. I feel like this consequence of racism tends to emphasize or overload some aspect of people's personality compared to others. I'm wondering how you approach that, knowing that people will be at the same time, from my clinical experience and also personal experience, both attached to those caricatures and at the same time will feel very ambivalent about it. Well, that's what you would talk about. For instance, I like classical music. So when people start talking about tastes and music and uh, say they might like certain uh, black figures, Aretha Franklin, for instance, 
and we talk about how it's a wonderful thing, how wonderful she sings. It's, it's deep and uh, full of uh, energy and primitive, forceful emotionality. And I say, yeah. And I say, and the same thing exists, say, when you're listening to an opera uh, and an aria, that there's always a surprise in understanding that I might like opera and I might be able to sing some of the uh, arias. How do you do that? You're not supposed to like it. Now, they aren't going to say that, but the implication is that I'm not. Why not? Because you're a black person. Well, I say, well, you like Aretha Franklin. And that's uh, black music. You know, how is it that you as a white person like it? Well, it's full of feeling. And I say, well, so is the aria we're talking about. It's full of feeling as well. But he's saying that then we get to a point where we're dealing with a stereotype way of looking at people when there's maybe something basic we have in common and liking the expression of feeling. That's a simplistic way to look at it, but I think it's a basic way. People have uh, twisted and distorted in the way they've learned to feel things and think certain kinds of ways of feeling, characteristic of a certain kind of ethnic uh, racial uh, attitude or identity. And that they may say a white person may be uh, uneasy with himself with the way in which he's full of emotionality. And he may feel at odds with his brethren and not think that they can understand why he's so full of emotional transport. And he's drawn to uh, see uh, this kind of thing and he thinks is more readily expressed by black people, people of color. And he makes an identification with them in doing this, but he can't accept that part of himself that feels the way they do. So he's ambivalent about what he does feel. He may be close to me. He may even be coming to see me because he's hoping to feel a similarity of a depth of feeling. But it's hard for him to accept it. He may be ashamed of it. Only uh, seeing somebody like me makes it possible for him to be at ease, he thinks. But some part of him also despises the fact that he feels like that. And I think that would be the uh, part often that we would try to address. What's wrong with feeling like that? And why do you think that feeling like that is only the uh, province of uh, people of color and that you as a white person are not allowed to feel like that? Do you feel like this work in the other way too? Yes, it can work the other way. I mean, say that the, the black person, me, might feel it's a good thing to belong to a uh, accomplished group of people who appreciate, quote, high art and make an identification with the idea that that's a good thing. And yet the art itself is beautiful. And it doesn't have to be said just because it's, quote, been created by white people that that gives it a kind of validation. In and of itself, it's lovely to listen to and be moved by. And just because I do doesn't mean that, what, I have a commitment to being white or wanting to be like white people and liking that. Yet that's the way it's going to be perceived. Whereas why can't we just accept that any kind of expression of beauty is what? The uh, province of all people, whatever their uh, color is. To break through the, the stereotype ways of thinking about such things. What you're trying to emphasize is common humanity. Yeah, there's always <laughs> this common humanity. I mean, it transcends race. I mean, why it is that people have to defend against their way of experiencing their humanity by saying something special about it that only their group can appreciate. It makes me think about the fact that organizing people, whether it's about race or other kind of criteria, can be very reassuring for everybody. I'm this, I'm that, I'm not this, I'm not that. It creates a sense of maybe security. So when you come up and you tell your patients, um, 
or you try to help your patient understand that what they feel doesn't have to be related to those preconceived or those socially construct criteria like race, it might create a lot of anxiety. Well, it does. But what about it? The anxiety got something to do with thinking that the way you feel cannot be understood as shared. So if we can say something about being humans means that we can share every kind of expression of feeling. That's the thing we have in common. That's not just a feature of any particular racial group or attitude toward it. I mean, the anxiety is, is kind of worked on. It's kind of dissipated when the experiences of difference don't keep you from seeing what you have in common. And that's what I think is, is broken down in therapy. When you got an alliance, the person is different from you and yet feels the same way you do about many things in the way that you hadn't thought that his being different from you would allow him to understand you. I think that's basically one of the things that the therapy accomplishes. And, you know, theoretically, we talk about all the, the unconscious ways in which we share ways of defending ourselves. And then we can recognize when we engage in maneuvers to deny what we see as something we have in common with somebody because it gives us anxiety to think that we can be like somebody who's supposed to be different from ourselves. But in the process of the therapeutic experience, you get to see that there isn't any difference. Or else there is difference, but the difference doesn't keep you separated. I mean, it's a different way to experience something that you commonly share. Where else in this world can you maybe so readily have the opportunity to experience that, except maybe in a therapeutic setting? I'm saying that because from my own practice, I could see how for some of my patients, it was kind of a strange and unsettling experience to feel, I hope, understood in a very deep level by someone who is a C aesthetically, then from the aesthetic projections of a lot of different values and history and story and things like that, as so different than them. Yeah. It shakes people more than just, for instance, the question of gender. Mm -hmm. As a male therapist, women are not so surprised to feel understood by me. But the question of skin color is much more difficult to go through. The issues around it are much heavier and create, therefore, I mean, that's my hypothesis, yeah. a really a, a shock for patients. And sometimes I feel like it actually put the therapy in danger when uh, they can experience a deep connection with someone who in some ways represents something they oppose to. I was wondering your thoughts about that. The conception of a racial difference as representing fundamental difference stems from so many things. And now one of the first things is a way to justify aggression against others by being able to impose upon them your will and your authority to make them subject to whatever you want to get from them. And there's a conception of a basic humanity you share, which raises some moral objections in your mind about how to proceed against forcing people to do your will. So you're going to have to do something about how you conceive of them in order to justify continuing to do this. And I think that's one of the ways in which a notion of fundamental difference emerges. Well, they're not really like us. They are something other than us. And that being the case, we can define what that other is, which is something less than us, 
that justifies our doing whatever we want to do at their expense to serve ourselves. But, you know, it's a conception then that puts into place an idea that there is a fundamental difference. And everything that you know and interacting with them that keeps raising the issue of something shared has to be what? Devalued, dismissed, in order to continue to have an elevated conception of yourself in reference to them. Yet, it's hard to maintain it. And the privilege of feeling elevated or superior position must produce a lot of guilt. And then to admit the ways in which you are guilty about what you're doing makes people uncomfortable. So they don't want to think about these things. And they want to keep in place the stereotype view of what that difference is. And I think that's what makes for this thing being so intractable, so persistent. Next, the physiological differences in appearance that people of different races have can also be used as evidence to say, see, this is a fundamental difference in the way that you would like to define what that difference is in terms of physical appearance. That's evidence that what you want to do about making this a natural difference, that's the evidence that you can refer to. There are these physiological differences in appearance. The racist thinks that this is the proof that I'm talking about, that my way of looking at this thing is naturally valid. From your clinical experience, what difference do you see between the insistence to be white and the insistence to be black. If it's insistence to be white, then it has to relate again to the notion of preserving your racist attitude of the privilege and the specialness and the difference that's accorded you as a white person over against the black person. The way in which you have to continually prove that difference. The way in which it has to be enforced continually is the thing that keeps reinforcing the idea of one's need to be white over against a thing that is not oneself and that is less than oneself. And for the black person, his difference has been cast in a negative way and he doesn't feel himself in that negative way, that he embraces the idea of being who he is as a black person in terms of what it looks like, you know, how it's perceived by others. He wants to emphasize is not the way he perceives himself. So you have to, what, insist on being the thing that others denigrate without thinking that it's, they're justified in denigrating it. you got these two warring camps. A uh, black person can't help in, in a defensive way asserting his right to be who he is without being looked down on. I just mentioned the opposition between white and black, but it's not really the only uh, case of racism that we can find uh, in America or uh, anywhere else. In your practice, how do you think it plays out with people who are neither, quote, white, neither, in quote, black, and still experience racism? Particularly with Asians, you know, they have a highly cohesive, supportive culture, I guess. So in the ways in which high aspirations are held out to them, and they know how to work hard at achieving these things, they see examples of the achievement all around them. And so they feel that they should be recognized on the basis of what they're able to do. And they're not all the time sensitive to, uh, say, the racism in this country. The way it's directed at black people necessarily isn't the way they experience it. But they come to see often that they are looked down upon and discriminated against 
on the basis of their difference. They don't have the notion of the internalized effects, uh, the undermining effects of uh, you know racist subjugation that black people do, but they still see that it can be subjected to attitudes white people might have taught them that are demeaning. On the one hand, they can be seen and acknowledged as achievers and people who accomplish things, but on the other hand, they can be looked down upon, and this is often quite a surprise to them. And they often, I think, make an identification with whites in terms of being among the selected group of accomplishers. And they can be, but that doesn't exclude them from being mistreated. I think they are surprised to see this sort of thing. And then they come and often uh, talk to me about what my experiences have been in this regard as a way to get into how they see themselves. They are not like me, and yet they are put into a situation in which they sometimes abuse like me. This is something we talk about often enough. Mm -hmm. I think there's internalized racism on the part of many uh, people of color in which they begin to be representatives of the thing, uh, you might say some normative white way of thinking that they identify with and that identification elevate themselves as a result. And so they can look down on others like themselves as surrogates for the uh, white people that they want to be affiliated with. Many groups who see themselves as distinct, special, in regard to others of their group, you know, based on some notions they got of whatever it is that distinguishes them as special. Anyway, you can think about the privilege accorded you being a member of whatever your group is over against any other group that puts you in a favorable position and denies to them the same kind of recognition that you accord to yourself. I think that happens all the time. I, mean, I don't see what's so strange about that. The effects of internalized attitudes, the internalization of uh, ways in which you've come to despise yourself and uh, identify with those who despise you isn't so strange a phenomenon. Where you see the power is with those you identify with who nevertheless look down on you. We're not saying anybody's doing this in a conscious way. I mean, this is unconsciously acted out, but this happens all the time. This happens also with question of gender, question of class. Yeah. Whatever the group identification is you're making, in terms of those who have power to enforce the ways in the society that people are going to be viewed favorably or not. This formulation, I feel, is especially important for people who might be listening outside of the United States where the criteria of white and black are not really used, but they will be equivalent of that, of the dominance and uh, people who are subjected to them and how the question of identification will um, be at play. Do you have any experience with black people who are not African and how they experience the question of racism in the U.S.? I have people from uh, Ghana and Kenya and so forth. They are not familiar with the uh, terms of the, uh, the racist discourse here in terms of black and white so much as we are, uh, nor are they inhibited by the internalization of notions of your own inadequacy. So they wonder what's wrong with these uh, people here who somehow are so full of uh, notions of their personal diminishment and they feel so undermined and they have no conception of the ways in which the people here have been so bombarded from the time they were born to a uh, notion of themselves as something inadequate and, uh, and almost defiled.
And they see the people here with these varying ideas of what constitutes uh, personal worth based on notions of uh, the degree of fairness, uh, fair skin they may have versus the lack of it. They come and they interact with us. And I have people who come to see me in my office and come to see me when they think that I am freed of those kinds of uh, self-limiting attitudes and that therefore I can understand their uh, aggressive drive to uh, achieve. They made an identification with me based on some notion of personal assertion. They can uh, link to some ideal notion of what it means to be uh, a self-respecting person. Many people here, people of color, might, in spite of themselves, associate that with being white. It's like so many uh, black people think that in order to be true to themselves, they have to, what, depart from any notion of, uh, what, personal accomplishment, going to school, working hard, accomplishing things, speaking, uh, you know, literally, because that means being white. These immigrants might come and think automatically, well, this is a natural function of your capacity to, what, accomplish, to assert yourself. It has nothing to do with notions of whiteness or blackness. And they can't understand how it can get associated in that way by people of color here. I was also wondering if you had experience with people who were not black but also experienced racism, how they felt about it. Sure. Clinically, if you felt like there were some significant differences to address uh, so that people maybe could be more sensitive to those things. Well, there are white people who experience racism, let's say, <laughs> in terms of ethnic differences and their estimation of how their ethnic group compares with some idealized white ethnic group and how they've been, say, looked down on uh, as a result of being members of that group, and how they've internalized notions of, uh, on the one hand, inferiority, and on the other hand, a uh, sense of uh, pride and distinctiveness, though, and being members of their group, different from members of other group with particular kinds of features that set them apart and maybe make them feel good and special. But in general, you can still talk about the ways in which gr groups are categorized. Nobody talks about this too much, but you know, people have internalized notions of wh where their group falls and what place it occupies and how it's viewed by other people. So, I mean, it's, it's just to talk to others about how they feel diminished. And some of it has a lot to do with how they feel they can, I would share a sense of that diminishment too, being an American black person. And that I think that's the initial thing that might bring us together. And then the, uh, it gets deeper into uh, recognition that we are just people who've been maybe victimized and that victimization is not the sum total of who we are and that we share something uh, basic as human beings with each other and with other people, not like us. This begins to emerge through the ways in which we interact with each other. Do you think there is something of rationalization in this question of how one identify with being black? You want to rationalize by offering some sort of excuse for why it is that you may be seen in, in an unfavorable way or rationalize a way of looking at others in an unfavorable way without it being acknowledged. Two and three years old, people begin to see that the world categorizes and sees differences among people. Kids want to belong and they want to have a sense of worth and they can offer all kinds of excuses for why it is that they aren't. It's a painful way to try to escape a recognition that you've been looked down on. It's very important when we are working with adults to always keep in mind that they were children once.
kid has to offer a rationalization for why it is his group and he himself as a member of it is mistreated and looked down on. The thing is to try to escape any notion that's because that's a basic perception of what your worth is, which is an intolerable thing. So you have to find some kind of way to try to escape it. One way is to accept the racializing of the situation. Well, I am black and I will be so regardless of what you say. And then you can engage in all kinds of exaggerated ways of doing that. Like I think today the idea of trying to take the term nigger and reinvent it in some kind of way, like black boys do when they talk about a group solidarity and something they share with their friends that affirm something distinctive about themselves that they know in the larger society is viewed negatively. But they can take the term and make it into something special for them that's positive. Naturally, they're going to do that if what they are as black people is denigrated. So, well, I am black. What do you want me to do about it? I will show you the thing about being this that's a good thing, in spite of all the ways that they've learned that people view it negatively. So we're going back to, there's a question of being black as an aesthetic question. Sure. And that will be overshadowed by being black as uh, qualities, inherent qualities of the person. Black is beautiful as a way to aesthetically assert a countervailing notion of yourself as special that you would share as a member of that group. But, I mean, it's a, still a defining feature of what you look like. So you take it, you accept it, and you affirm it in a positive way. What you affirm is not the aesthetic anymore. What you affirm is a sense of self that can be experienced as devalued. You affirm a sense of self that you will not allow others to devalue. But you know in the ways in which you affirm it is precisely the way they would say it's not worthy. Mm -hmm. That you want to turn that conception on its head by saying, well, it is to us. In terms of the, say, appearance so many uh, black people have now, rather than going and subjecting themselves to the agony of the beauty parlor, They uh, wear their hair in a natural way. Mm -hmm. This is what kinky hair looks like, and that's the kind of hair I've got, and that's the kind of hair I will wear. And it says something about my authentic self, and I'm not subject to your ways of uh, un making me think there's something wrong with it. How young people start identifying as a special group based on race. Boys and girls usually, I mean, there are some uh, notable exceptions, but usually identify with their gender pretty early on. Mm -hmm. I would say probably around three, four, the identification is pretty strong. Yeah. But then the question of race, it's heavily charged symbolically. Mm-hmm. And the question for me is, when do people start identifying with the symbolic aspect of it? Because I felt that in France, where I worked, the identification with the symbolic of it came a few years later than it did in the U.S. That children in the U.S., I worked for somewhat a year in Harlem when I moved to the U.S., and I felt like kids around already four or five, they were black and I was white, and this difference was significant. When I was in the suburb of Paris, children around six, seven started thinking around those lines. Before that, they really didn't seem to care. No. It was striking to me how in the U.S. the identification to the symbolic values came so much earlier. Because two, three years for a child, it's a world apart.
Well, why shouldn't it come earlier in the U.S.? Because the racist attitudes are so pervasive. Kids already know what the distinctions are that are made and based on color. They see it reinforced everywhere. As soon as they look out in the newspapers, on the television, what their parents are talking about when they come home complaining about how they've been mistreated or anything like this, that I think is uh, constant in the uh, social environment and maybe uh, kind of default acceptance of these distinctions, that there cannot be anything other than what we see. So either you recognize that you're black and you have to deal with it, or you're in trouble because parents raise their kids with the idea of trying to instill in them a, a strength or a protectiveness so they won't be so wounded by this difference. But I think that perception is early on, notion of what your color signifies. And the thing that is signified, is, which is something negative, is hard to accept and to deal with. Whether you consciously are dealing with it or not, assert something basic about what's worthy about being yourself. And I think that starts early on. I mean, I think if you ask a three-year-old who's able to talk, who are you? You know, what's he going to say? Something like, well, I'm me. You know, I'm myself. This is myself. And maybe he's able to understand things. He starts talking in terms of a racial uh, ethnic identity because he's been bombarded sufficiently to know that that's what, what his place is and how he's perceived or how defensively he has to act, what, defend off the ways in which he's perceived that undermine him. Sure, I think that happens early on in this country for obvious reasons. You listen to the podcast that we recorded on race and racism that has been released before this interview. What came up that surprised me was that this idea that only white people could be racist, that only the dominant group could be racist. From a clinical point of view, I wanted to know your take on that. How do you think it plays out in an analysis? This is hard to talk about. I mean, white people are racist in the way that racism says there are differences among the races. And the difference that is being established by white people is that they are the favorable group. They are on the top. They have the power and the authority. They are the most beautiful. They are the smartest. And the ways in which you're relating to others of other groups who are seen as less than you are makes you feel guilt. So either you're going to have to accept something about uh, there's something wrong with this, Even if you don't perpetuate racism, you may not even have racist thoughts, but you're a member of a group whose view of itself is that they represent the epitome of human beingness and that everybody else is less than that. You don't have to consciously go around thinking this, but you know, why would white people want to give up that position of uh, you know, being the favored ones? Oh, I could give you a lot of reasons. Well, many of them would not want to give it up. What does it say? That they are the ones who've been chosen to uh, succeed, to have, what, the most money, the best spouses, somehow to have been looked upon in a favorable way. But you always know there's somebody else who's even always going to be looked at as lower than yourself. And I think that brings about a certain kind of white narcissistic sense of ideal perfection in reference to everybody else who's non-white. That's the level of which I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. To exist on that level, 
means to maintain a certain sense of privilege. You can feel guilty about it, but many white people, probably most of them, wouldn't want to give it up and become black people, since the black people is the one, are the ones designated to be the ones who suffer and who are the perpetual losers. And so I, I think that's why the keeping in position the notion of the racial difference serves the uh, purpose of keeping oneself in a favorable position. So in order to do that, there's going to be an insistence on having the power to keep it in place. I think that's what we mean by saying that only white people can be racist, is to keep, preserve the idea of what the racial difference consists of, what the racist idea of what that difference is. Are you implying that if you receive in your office a black person, you will de facto consider that this person cannot be racist? No. We're just saying in general how you can have the power to enforce something that might serve you as a white person. Insofar as a black person comes in, he wouldn't be subjected to notions of racism if he didn't live in a racist place. So all his ideas about what constitutes that difference have been ideas probably imposed on him through the authority of the, uh, what, the controlling power of the white people who are responsible for the social organization he exists in. So what he's done is internalized notions of things that maybe even reflect negatively on him. But not necessarily on him. Like, Don't you happen to hear patients who are not white having a racist discourse on other kind of uh, quote-unquote race? Sure, all the time. But, I mean, what are we going to talk about? Any way you denigrate somebody else on the basis of some fundamental difference they have from you is unacceptable. So we want to get at why is it so important for them to think this way? What benefit is there to them in looking down on somebody else in terms of elevating themselves in reference to them? To me, that would be what fundamentally where we would go in our discussion. I'm saying, too, that it's a hard thing to have to keep thinking yourself in an elevated way in reference to somebody else. It must be psychically exhausting all the time to have to see oneself in a certain way in reference to somebody else. And desirous of being relieved the burden of doing that. And to finally just be able to accept yourself as a member of the, the human race among others. I think that's the, the yearning people have. I think even the races has that yearning. So, you know, you're able to talk with somebody who can understand why you want to look down on somebody. But at the same time, what the price is you got to pay, why you feel so inadequate yourself that you need to do that. That's what you would be talking about in therapy. Because I feel like to not let them be a racist is to deprive them of a part of their experience. Yeah. I'm talking about I'm better than the white guy, for instance. Mm -hmm. And the white guy is the oppressor. That's mm -hmm. it, um, which I hear in somewhat as a, some expression of racism. And I'm wondering, you've been practicing much longer than me and in a context where the question of racism has been much more prevalent than in the context I'm working with now. And so I'm wondering how you dealt with that. For me, really, the question there is how do we recognize the complexity of the person and how also how we keep working with the sense of shared humanity because shared humanity implies that we can also be the bad things that we see in others. Yes, you can begin to accept that when you talk about how your need to say the black person who defends against the way he's been treated by a white person by saying, 
Uh, I'm morally finer. I'm better than you. I wouldn't behave that way toward you if I had the power. And I think the basic thing is he wouldn't have the need to be talking about his aggressive ideas about being better than somebody else if he hadn't been subjected to the basic question of white-black splitting. It's that notion of splitting. I think that's the poisonous thing. We go through uh, whatever the developmental phases we go through, and it's probably always some kind of leftover residual capacity to look down on any other, anything different from ourselves. We've gotten through those phases and arrived at a certain notion of ambivalent acceptance of difference, but the capacity to engage in splitting, I think, is a, is a given. It's always going to be there. And there are things in life that lend themselves to our seeing, making use of that difference when we feel individually undermined and threatened. So we make use of the idea of the splitting, to, uh, the, to cast others as bad and ourselves as good. Say the black guy who thinks about himself being better than the, uh, the white person is only thinking in terms of it's a reprocessing of what's been happening to him in terms of white toward black. You don't think that people inherently can be racist, no matter where they come from? No, sure they can be racist, but they aren't originating it so much as it's a defensive reaction to things that have happened to them. The way they are racist? Yes. We have been focusing a lot on the, I would add quotes, the whites being racist. Do you have experiences of people who come to see you who look white or perceived as such and might have a difficulty being fragile with you because they might think something along the line how can I complain to someone who is from your skin probably went through so much yeah how do you deal with that clinically it's not easy first off there are so many instances of the way people are disturbed about what's happened to them not just in terms of say uh, you could be a mixed blood person and feel like this but in general You know, how you imagine the pain of your experiences compared to uh, the gross uh, suffering other people have undergone is minimal, uh, no consequences at all, as if you're just whining about nothing. Many people feel a lot of guilt about that. And the emphasis is on recognizing what matters to oneself. If it's painful to oneself, it is. And it doesn't have to be compared to somebody else's pain in order to, to legitimize it. <laughs> It's to uh, acknowledge something that you have a right to your own uniqueness. And to accept that as a given, rather than to think that it only has meaning in terms of some comparison others might make to something else that really qualifies as suffering, which is absurd. So there's a great relief people have in seeing that the feelings they have can be accepted regarding how they feel about what's happened to them. There's no need to compare it to anything else. It's simply to, to recognize they can be accepted that it's right that they feel what they do. Now, to get into an assessment of what it is that's happened to them might, in the end, make them see, you know, the many ways in which they were made to be so sensitive to something. But that's for them to come to understand and explore. That's how I understand that. The acceptance of somebody's right to his own separateness. Uniqueness, again, uh, what's happened to him is his story. It doesn't need to be compared to anybody else's.
So now, regarding the ways in which that might play out, say, people of mixed blood, like in this country, there, there's a large uh, contingent of people like that. I'm interested in what you have to think about people who have parents with different skin colors. In America, you talk about mixed blood. I think this is such a strange way to describe the situation. But this is the way in which it's constructed in a racist society. Yes. And so psychological inheritance they have that's been constructed to have meaning and value according to the degree to which they're mixed, or the degree to which they have things mixed in with whatever it is that's white conceived of as being white and one has a value and one is diminished in reference to it yet nevertheless it's a complicated psychic inheritance and you can't deny any part of it unless you take away some part of oneself but we know how those parts are viewed the uh, white part is elevated in a way over against any other part in this society i don't see how that way of thinking about it can be avoided So one can deny the other part, the part that's demeaned, and act as if that's not part of oneself. And, you know, there's a kind of uh, way of not liking oneself and the need to do that in order to be accepted. Mm -hmm. So there's always a sense of guilt that emerges sooner or later. Something like that is what we begin to talk about. Insofar as I might be conceived of as representing that part that's what has been cast aside and the way in which we have an alliance that makes them be able to positively see me in that light they can reclaim that part of themselves and be grateful that they can be in a context in which it's not looked down on but it can be affirmed i think that happens frequently enough so people who parents are from different skin color they carry the split that the society is producing Everything that we talk about is very much related to the American society. There is racism everywhere, and I'm sure people who listen to us will find things that they can relate to no matter where they are. But the structural insistence on the separation of races and the concept yes. of races. Yes. I know that, for instance, in France, you are not allowed to officially refer to people based on a race because the concept of race has been debunked. And so even if it's a social construct that certainly drives a lot of the social interactions, it is not supported by the French state. In the U.S., this concept of race, even if people know it's a social construct, they keep using it all the time, and, and we've been referring to it all the time. So it seems like if you are the creation of something that the society will expect it to stay separate, and as if psychically it will really structure the way you relate to yourself, is this along the line of what you're saying? Yes, it, it is along that line. You become a traitor to one or the other? You can. The strict way in which the two are separated it makes you identify with one most of the time to the exclusion of the other. And the excluding part generates a degree of guilt. But you can also be flexible. You can uh, give expression to many aspects, uh, all or both, or neither, and just conceive of oneself as a person sometimes. But depending on the group uh, you're with, The uh, people, their ethnic identity, they might bring out one aspect at some time to, and minimize the other. depends on how you want to give expression to the, those parts of yourself that don't necessarily have to be warring, regardless of how much pressure there is in the society to keep them apart. You know, but it's a psychic burden to have to be dealing with this. I mean, to come to a unified, uh, integrated conception of yourself is not an easy thing. Maybe it's just a more extreme version of that kind of separation of parts, uh, aspects, psychic identifications people have in general, you know, in terms of their personality uh, aspects. 
There are many things you can be. And say if you came up on a family to emphasize a certain kind of way to be, you should be outgoing, engaging, uh, cheerful, and yet allowed to what? Be uh, pensive and reflective or to think about things that uh, pain you. Those things are separated too in one's mind. Uh, but they are major uh, portions of yourself. So how do you integrate them? Sometimes you can be with people where one way of being can be emphasized and other you with others where it's okay to be the other. I think it's it's an individual challenge to each person to begin to see himself in some unified way, regardless of what the racism in the society tries to encourage. So before we end, Lee, I have just one last question. I would like to ask you if you have any advice for clinicians who would be worried to bring up racial issues. I think they should never hesitate to let people see that racist attitudes are inhumane. And I think our task is to let people be authentic and humane. And all the ways that you've been prevented from fulfilling yourself in a respectful way, and all the ways that, that you've been prevented from seeing others in a respectful way. And if that means letting people see that their attitudes toward others are not humane, that are hurtful and, and you know unacceptable, I think we have to work with them so they come to see that. I don't think we, have to, we, we should stand apart and not make some judgment about that. I think basically it's being humane in the people. That's our task. We have to denounce it. We have to denounce it. We have to let them see if they're not being humane, and certainly a racist is in no way being humane. You can't let people be content to have attitudes like that. I think we should work with them to see let the better part of themselves would condemn having attitudes like that and, and to gain, come into a possession uh, what a loving and considerate in their nature. Maybe that's what our task is as psychoanalysts. Thank you, Lee. Thank you, Greg. So this is it. Thank you for listening to the second part of my interview with Lee Jenkins on race and racism from a psychoanalytic point of view. I hope you liked it as much as I did. I think Lee is a fantastic clinician who has very good insights and who is very sensitive to the complexity of our psychical issues. If you want to leave a comment, a critique, a question, please do so. We haven't received any, any yet on this podcast. I really am not sure why. I, I, I wonder if it's because of the nature of the topic. People don't dare to say something, don't dare to express their questions. And if that's the case, that's too bad because all the questions are legitimate here and we will try to address them from a psychoanalytic standpoint. Other than that, please follow us on Twitter, Facebook. Well, Twitter would be better. I mean, just I don't like Facebook. Please drop WhatsApp and install Signal instead as WhatsApp is now becoming more and more absorbed by Facebook and its um, barbaric policy. Until then, send us an email at discussions on psychoanalysis at pm.me. By the way, Proton Mail which is different from Google. It respects your private life. You can have a free address. You can pay $5 for a year to have complete privacy with a lot of um, very useful services. Thank you. Thank you. And see you soon. And once again, Happy New Year. Bye-bye.